0: You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. If you've ever been to the beach, especially a beach where there are a number of large breaking waves, you're aware that underneath the wave, once it breaks, is what they call an undertow, correct? Correct. There's other names for them. I think riptide is one. It's usually a little more forceful. I think rip current is one. I was reading this week about some of these things. I'm not nearly this smart. I just read about it recently, okay? Um, But an undertow is that which you can't see, and it occurs after the wave has broken. In fact, once the wave crashes and breaks, then it creates a current that comes back out the opposite direction, and it has been known sometimes to take people out. It doesn't really take you under, but it sweeps you away from the shore. What's interesting is as the wave breaks, it you know it affects many people. And as I was thinking about how undertows work and um, their effect, and that they're not really seen initially, all you see is the is the wave, and then suddenly there's this undertow that curves, and it affects you and other people. I was thinking, undertow—that's what consequences are like. Do you know that? Consequences of sin are like the undertow after a breaking wave. You don't really see them right off the bat. They're somewhat kind of hidden, and they affect a lot of people, and they want to pull you away from the shore. They occur after the sin kind of breaks, doesn't it? We see that, like, man, that's awful! But underneath that water line is still more to come. So as we look at a number of chapters today, I want you to have this picture in mind. This is just more of the undertow from David's sin of adultery and murder and deceit. It's just continuing to pull people from the shore. With that in mind, take your Bibles and locate 2 Samuel chapter, oh, we'll start at 13. Can we go there? It's actually a little before 13, about 12, 26. We're going to be looking at the sin and the sins here. And we're going to see this morning a lot about what... Uh, how consequences work, what they do, and how they affect us. got a good bit of things I want to share with you and a lot of chapters to cover. We won't be able to cover all of them in great detail, but I think we'll get the real gist of the narrative for sure. Remember, this story began in chapter 11. It continues through about the first part of 19. We're going to look this morning at two sections that show us the consequences to David and others. In fact, here's really our take-home truth today. I'll just kind of give it to you in a nutshell up front. We're going to see that consequences are the undertow of sin that eventually affect both others and ourselves. In fact, could you read that with me? Quite simple today. Let's read it together, can we? Consequences are the undertow of sin that eventually affect both others and ourselves. And we're going to see this break out in two sections in these three plus chapters this morning. You're going to see that in chapters, oh, I guess like, uh, what is it, 12, 13, uh, 14, it really is consequences of sin to others. I'll show you on a slide kind of how I broke this out for you. It's really, those are consequences of sin to others, 12 and 13, and beginning in 14 and 15, you're going to see the consequences of David uh, sin upon himself. I say it like this, in 12 and 13, we're going to see the clan is a mess, and in 14 and 15, we're going to see the man is a mess, all right? But all of this we are going to see is really sin's consequences having its effect. It's the undertow of that breaking wave. Let me walk you through this sequentially first. And before I do that, let me give you a definition that we can work with, I think. Because I, I want to make sure that we don't just use a word without understanding what it means. We talk about sin's consequences. We talk about the undertow of sin. Here's what we're meaning. That for God's people, and I think it's important qualifier there. Consequences in the life of God's people when we sin, they really are, and they can work as God's discipline through natural temporal means for supernatural purposes. All right? Just kind of keep that as an overarching definition of the word consequences. Especially to God's people. When we sin... And then there are consequences, and I think i talked to you before about the severity of consequences, sometimes are related to the severity of the sin, we're not going to all that again, that was in week one. But here in week two, we're going to see that consequences really do act as God's discipline through natural, temporal means. Aren't we glad they're temporal, they don't last forever, amen? But they do last for a season, and they often come through natural means. The laws that God has set up work, and so we experience the the, the law of sowing and reaping. We experience consequences to our sin, but God can often use those for supernatural purposes to bring us back to himself. So you're going to see this play out in these chapters, both in the life of other people and in David's life. Let me walk you through the, the, the timeline, okay? I'll do this somewhat quickly. I'll post it for you as well. Here's really chapters, so, 13 through about 15, good three chapters, um, in a real nutshell, all right? I trust you've read this in advance with your family or individually. Um, but let me kind of walk you through the real essence of the consequences in these chapters. First of all, Tamar's rape. This constitutes the bulk of chapter 13. And, of course, it's on the heels of, of chapter 11 and 12. And when David commits adultery and murder and he lies and then he's confronted by Nathan he does repent, but the Lord says to him that I'm going to, do, I'm going to punish you and judge you in front of all Israel. And suddenly now we see the, the undertow of David's sin beginning in chapter 13 when um, Amnon incestuously rapes his stepsister Tamar. You can read the story in 13. I'll just read verses 11 through 14. He was involved in deceit and trickery, and by the way, he had a friend who was the last Thing a friend should ever be. I mean, think about it. The friend told Amnon how to deceive his stepsister so he could get her into bed. That's not the kind of friend you want. Well, verse 11 says, When she brought them near, to him, near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. It's For me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king. He will not withhold me from you, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. In other words, he raped her. Very sad and tragic consequence of David's own inability to control his own sexual and lustful desires. We find that Amnon actually hated her more than he loved her as a result of this. And she leaves, and uh, you can read the story. Basically, Absalom finds out about it. He, in his heart, I think, already decides he's going to kill Amnon. What I think is most interesting is 1321. 1321. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry, but yet he does nothing. He feels something, doesn't he? But he does nothing. We, can, we could, um, um, in our minds, wonder why. I think one reason is this. When you know what you've done, and you're like, well, I, it kind of leaves you in a passive place to speak to it when someone else does it. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying it can't be overcome. But I think in this case, David's probably thinking, man, what, what would I say to him? And by the way, Amnon grew up in an environment where I think, and Carlos and I were talking this week about this a good bit, where he probably just watched his father want stuff and then just get it. I mean, he had many wives many concubines. That's the essence of what happened with Bathsheba. He wanted it. He called for it. He got it. So he grew up in an environment where the king could just want something and get it. So what do you think his son probably thought? I want it. Why shouldn't I get it? So when he was told no, he said, hey, you can't tell me no. I'll get what I want. There's a lot of stuff behind this story. But it begins, this is the beginning of the public consequences. Well, next we see Absalom's murder. Excuse me, you see Amnon's murder by Absalom. Look down in verse 30, excuse me, verse 28 of chapter 13. Would you look there with me? Absalom is angry, and he's going to take revenge and get justice in his mind. so he commands his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then you kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous, be valiant. And so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And all the king's sons arose and each amounted his mule and fled. Interesting, this sounds a lot like his dad, doesn't it? When he couldn't deceive Uriah into going home to have sexual relationships with his wife so that the baby would look like it was Uriah's. He tried twice, remember? He finally said, well, I'll just kill Uriah. And he told the men, you just do this and make sure that man's dead. Now Absalom's doing the very same thing. So you have an incestuous rape You have a murder and also more deceit. You find David's passivity is increasing. Interesting part of the story here. Look at verse 38 of chapter 13. And so Absalom flees, because the story was back to David by now that his son had been murdered. His firstborn Ammon had been murdered. Absalom flees to Geshur, which by the way is his uh, father-in-law. That's his wife's side over there. Excuse me, his mom's side of the family. Excuse me. He goes over there, he's there, and it says the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Verse 1 of chapter 14, Joab the son of Zariah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Now there's some translations that say that the spirit of the king ceased to go out to Absalom in verse 39 of chapter 13. And so I'm not going to debate the textual variance here except to say this. The, The context seems to say David's heart was grieved because of the the, uh, the distance and absence between him and Absalom. Uh, and yet David did nothing, by the way. When you read this, you find that his heart was grieved. He wanted to bridge the distance, but he never did anything. In fact, look with me at verse 24 of chapter 14. It took Joab conniving a plan to kind of tell David another parable, kind of like Nathan. He tells David a parable. Gets David to kind of understand why he should do something. And so he does a little something. But when, he, when Absalom comes to the, to the city of Jerusalem, he says, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. And so Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. He did this for about two years. Verse 28, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Verse 33, Joab went to the king and told him, he summoned Absalom. And so he finally comes to the king and bows himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So though there is this official meeting at some point, two years after the fact, it was a long, long journey. David experiences lots of passivity. In fact, you read this, you might want to say that David had some years in which he was very passive-aggressive, trying to get things done without actually just doing them openly and honestly. A consequence of sin. He feels paralyzed, kind of crippled. Of course, Absalom wanted to get back to the palace for reasons that weren't relational. He was power hungry. And so we see in chapter, uh, what is it, 15, his desire to really, you know, lead a coup against his dad. Look at verse 6 of chapter 15. It says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel So after about a two-year period, Absalom does find his way back to the palace. There is some type of relationship in general, or at least I should say access. But Absalom uses that to actually do things his dad wouldn't do, to judge the, the hard cases and those who are vulnerable and maybe apparently mistreated. He kind of sides with them. He steals the hearts of the people. He begins to win over Israel. Look at chapter 15, oh, maybe the end of verse 12. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Do you see that? I think that's not just because of Absalom's proactive conspiracy. I think it's also because of David's passivity. He was passive with his family. He was also passive as the king. His previous sin had kind of crippled his ability to act as the shepherd of his family and the shepherd of the nation. Absalom moves in on that, takes advantage of it. Well, this just leads to further humiliation on David's part. In fact, what you're about to read is sometimes overlooked, but it is amazing what happens. King David is actually fleeing now from the very town that he actually set up. Remember, it used to be in Hebron, and he moved the capital to Jerusalem, a more strategic location for the whole nation. That was his doing. He led the charge in that, and now he's being forced out by his own son. Look with me all oh, about verse 23 of chapter 15. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. Remember, Absalom's army is growing stronger. The conspiracy is getting deeper. So David flees Jerusalem. The king crosses the brook of Kidron. And all the people pass on toward the wilderness. Look at verse 30, how it describes it. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Wow! Wow! Do you see the public display going on here? Lots of people in Israel. Here's King David in the open, fleeing the very place that's his, that's his home. It reminds you of what God said he would do in 2 Samuel 12. 12. Don't forget where this started. All of the sequence of consequences, and we're not really done yet. I think the height of them is next week. But all of these consequences are actually the fulfillment of what God said he would do in 2 Samuel 12, 12. Here's the verse. Look at this with me, would you? You did it secretly, but I will do this thing. Read it with me. Before all Israel and before the sun. And where is David now? Weeping and barefoot. In what manner is he leaving Jerusalem in front of all Israel? What do they know about his family? What do they know about his son? What do they know about the rape of his daughter? What do they know about all these things? They know full well what's going on. That Amnon's been murdered. Absalom is now overthrowing his dad. Everyone's in the loop. And David's, to some degree, paralyzed and crippled. And he's fleeing Jerusalem. while wow, the consequences of sin... They're like an undertow that pull many people from the shore of God's safety. That's what we're seeing here. You know, I, as I read through this, I, I, I pictured David like perhaps wondering where to step without maybe uh, stepping on a landmine or maybe where to walk that's not going to maybe uncover another sin or, or something from his past, you know? And he's saying there's nowhere he can walk, no relationship he can have, no conversation he can have where it's not, something's not happening, that oh, that was the past, that's a result of the past, more consequences. As I was thinking about that and just reading through this, I remember Julie and I visiting a pauper's field in Woodland Cemetery just a few months ago, in fact. And we weren't able to actually go to the field because we left early, but I remember him explaining the field. He said, as we get to a, I think it's block 13 on the cemetery, he said, you'll find a field, there's only three headstones there. He said, but they will not allow anyone to bury anyone else there. They think there's thousands of graves. And they, 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 say, they say this, that probably anywhere you put a shovel, you'll probably hit a bone. Even though if you look at the field, it's green and it's nice and there's maybe three headstones. But he said so many paupers were buried there because they couldn't afford a right burial. They just buried them in the ground. He says that, 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 that whole place has thousands of bones just below the surface. So they found no burials there. Sometimes our lives are that way when we have... Sin that we don't deal with and it pops back up. Remember, we don't bury or hide sins. What do we do? We plant them, don't we? And sometimes after sin breaks its initial wave, we find ourselves like, man, where do I land? Where do I walk? Where do I put the shovel? Because wherever I put it, I feel like I'm gonna dig up an old bone. That's how consequences work. Now, all of this should hopefully position us to think, wow, we should take sin seriously. <laughs> because as you read through David's initial journey through the consequence, and there's still more to come. I mean, no one here is like, hey, yeah, I'm signing up for that. <laughs> no one's thinking that. We should be leery and, and, and sober about sin. So in light of our seriousness about it, let me, let me share with you just some things that I think we can draw as principles from this. Because seeing it sequentially is horrific. Like, wow, what a... What a what a four year period in David's life. Just being crippled and paralyzed and, and distant, and now fleeing in humiliation from the very place that he set up. Like, man, that's terrible. Let me see if I can draw out some principles for you that I want to run through kind of quickly as well. Five principles about consequences you need to know. Taken from this sequence of events. First of all, consequences never sing a solo. All right. In fact, just to make sure we stay within the text, after 11 and 12 discuss David's sin and his confession, his punishment, the first two words of chapter 13 are what? Now, Absalom. And then within this verse you find Tamar and you find Amnon. Within the very first verse of the very first chapter that begins to lay out consequences, you find additional names. Church, listen, consequences never sing a solo. They always form a choir. And they want to affect as many people as possible. So the next time you think, you know what, I'll just sin and get away with it. I'll just ta- I'll just do this in secret. Uh, uh, excuse me, consequences never sing a solo. And what you do will affect other people. Principle number two. Consequences can take a physical toll and increase fear. You'll find this as you kind of read through the narrative of David's situation here. Chapter 15, verse 14. The conspiracy grows stronger. Uh, David is involved in four long years of of running and, and, and dealing with consequences. I think you even find this same principle in Psalm 51. In fact, flip over there, would you? Psalm 51 is actually the psalm written in light of his confession about this sin. But I find one verse kind of very interesting. Psalm 51, verse 8. He says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, Let's be honest, that's a metaphor. It's an analogy speaking of God's punishment of David. But how does he describe it? He describes it in a physical way, doesn't he? Like, God, you have brought a, a, a physical type of calamity to me. My body has experienced physical results of the judgment of sin. I think as we read this the sequence of events, we begin to see David did experience increasing fear. Um, a type of indecisiveness. A worry, consequences take a physical toll, and they can increase fear. I tell you that because if you are unwilling to deal with consequences, and I'll explain more what that means in a minute, but own them, confront them, live through them, you're gonna find that same thing in your life. There's gonna be a lot of fear, and you're gonna find it takes a physical toll. So just keep this in mind. One thing we learned from David's story is that this is are, these are the result of consequences. Number three, consequences can make us emotionally weak and passive. In fact, let me just mention three things to you. It's somewhat similar to, to the second one, but I, I want to make this more specific. Write these verses down, will you? In 1321, David was angry but did nothing. In 1337, David was sorrowful but did nothing. And in 1428, David was pretending to do something. What do you find in all three of those examples? You find David unable to actually carry out or act upon what he either felt or knew. A type of paralysis from consequences. In fact, all of chapter 14 is about Joab trying to get David to do something about Absalom. Isn't that interesting? I think we can all agree that consciousness can make us emotionally weak and passive. I don't I think I mean by this, by the way, it's more than just being emotionally vulnerable or transparent. I think I'm a I mean, I think we'd all give thumbs up to that. We're all pro fans of like we want to be honest and transparent, authentic, vulnerable. I get that. But this is beyond that. This is almost where we're where we're afraid to even uh, venture out, do the next right thing because of what might happen, and so we become emotionally weak and passive. Number four, consequences can continually extract credibility and leave us with a lessening influence. do you think it's interesting how in 1512, it says that the conspiracy grew strong, the people with Absalom kept increasing. That didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened because David's own influence was lessening. It was weaker. And why was it weaker? Let's not run from the obvious. I suspect it was very hard for David to speak into the immorality of his sons, the deceit of his sons, the the murderous action of his son when he himself had done the very same thing. Now, we'll address address this in a minute, okay? Because if that were the only standard, we'd all be toast, wouldn't we? (laughs) You could never discipline your kids. You couldn't teach your kids because we've all done things that they're going to do. We're like, Well, that leaves all of us unqualified. In one sense, yes. There's a way to, to work with this. But just on the surface, at least understand something. That when you deal with consequences, one of the things they do is they do lessen your credibility unless you deal with them. That's why in each of these principles, I have the word can. Not all the time do consequences do this. But if we don't deal with them appropriately, this is sometimes the, the, what they can do to us in their fullest extent. Number five, consequences can force us to trust and not twist. I did not read to you yet the two best verses in these three plus chapters. In that sequence of events, there's two verses that are incredible. They show David unable to make any other moves. He's out of place. He, he, he's got to do something. He's, he's probably feeling passive. He's feeling somewhat paralyzed. He's not sure what to do. It's verses 25 and 26 of chapter 15. I love these two verses because it shows David he's not twisting anymore. He's finally just saying, God, this is what it is. Do what you have to do. Do what you think is best. I'm trusting myself to you in the middle of these consequences. Look at these verses, 15, 25, and 26. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. Now, why would he say that to, to, the, to, the, to, uh, to Zadok? Because if you have the ark with you, that's, like one, that's, that's God's presence, first of all. And the temptation may be to think, well, if I've got the ark, I've got the magic wand, you know? I've got the silver bullet. Some people thought that in the past. Remember, the, the enemies of God thought they get the ark, they're going to have the silver bullet. There's no one can bother us, but actually that didn't work. Because God's not going to just play by some formula like that. So David here realized, okay, if I take the ark with me, even though God wanted it in Jerusalem, you know, he just began to think through this, so he finally said, you know what, I don't need to take the ark as some kind of measure of protection or trying to make sure that I've got some magic wand here. And so he says to Zadok, take the ark back to the city where it belongs. And watch this next phrase. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. You find David in this sprawling position of trust. Watch this. Not only with his consequences, but in the very middle of them. He wasn't going to twist anymore. He's done doing that. He's now just simply trusting God. You see, this is... What consequences can do to us? Consequences can bring us to the point where we have to trust the Lord. Can somebody say, you know it, brother? (laughs) In fact, I've, I've told men this, and I'll just be very honest with you here and very transparent. I'm always honest with you, but I'll just be very open with you. I tend to believe, and Julie and I have discussed this multiple times. Our elders have discussed this at times. I tend to believe this is what makes a man repent. when consequences grip him to the point that he's got no other move. So I'll often tell couples, don't rescue your husband. Let the consequences have their effect. Because when consequences have their full effect, it can actually force us to trust and not twist. And that is actually a good thing. And some of the reasons that we don't feel the weight of sin is because people are sometimes shielding us or rescuing us. And I'm not saying this is easy. I imagine it's very difficult. But stepping out of the way and letting the consequences have their full effect may be the very thing, in this case, the very thing a man needs to break him and cause him to see, wow, I've got no other option but to trust the Lord in the middle of my consequences And with my consequences. This is what David did in 15 25 and 26. Now, watch this. This principle here doesn't violate our take home truth, which was what? Do you remember? Kind of the overall arching kind of truth from these these three plus chapters. I'll, I'll show it to you again. Here's the take home truth that consequences are the undertow of sin that eventually affect both others and ourselves. But this last principle, we'll go back to it now, we'll go back to it. This last principle actually is a good effect, isn't it? It causes us to trust God. So guess what? Even in the undertow of sin, even in consequences, God can use them in a good way to force you, to turn you to trusting. I think that's the last thing I want you to see in these chapters. We've seen it sequentially, we've seen it principally. But this last principle really opens up how we see this spiritually. That consequences can be God's tool to turn us and keep us turned towards trusting. Now, watch this, church. Listen very carefully. What is it that caused the sin in the first place? Not trusting. David says, I don't need to trust God. I'll just stay in Jerusalem. I not need to go to battle. I don't need to obey God. I don't need to follow the law. I want that woman. I'll have her. I know God says not to, but I want what I want, so I'll not trust God. I'll just trust myself. It's not trusting that leads to us sinning in the first place. So when God brings you back through consequence, he's going to deal with that root issue, which is trust. And sometimes consequences put us in such a place where we can't do anything but trust, and that's exactly where God wants us. Lord, I trust you. Solely, sufficiently, completely, with my consequences, and in the middle of my consequences. Now, watch this. I told you earlier that I would talk about how to deal with consequences. I think this is the way to deal with consequences. Own them, admit them. That's where you are. Embrace them and endure them. As long as we're trying to twist out from under them, as long as we're trying to say, "Well, I don't deserve this," or "I don't, this isn't fair." It's, it's, it's just angling, maneuvering, negotiating. It's not trusting. But admitting, owning, and saying, I'm sure I'm reaping what I've sown. And so God, I'm not sure how long this will last. I'm not sure all that's entailed, but I trust you in it and I trust you with it. That's the posture it goes for. And, and what I've seen in informal experience is this, when that's the attitude then God takes what's really negative consequences and he uses them in a very positive way in our life. In fact, I look around the room here at different people. I've been here since we've planted the church, 13 years. I know a lot of you. I know a lot of your stories. And that's one of the things I think that as a pastor, if I had to say what's one of those meaningful things about pastoring, it's just knowing your stories, walking with you through your life. And we stay in one church, we, we hang in there, we don't bail when it's hard. And then seeing that God has actually, in some of your lives, God has actually taken things that you and I know are, are painful. We might even say at times, embarrassing. Like, wow, that was a rough patch, yeah. But because you appropriately got up under those consequences, and you endured them and owned them, admitted them, and you let God use them to cause you to trust him, God has turned many of those things into a, as, into a win for you. It's been a positive thing for you. Can I explain how that works? Not on your life. I'm not near that smart, okay? But I love the way God works everything for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even the consequences from our sin. But you've got to be willing to kind of get up under him the right way. You've got to have this kind of posture where, you know what, God? I'm done twisting, trying to work the angles, trying to figure out the silver bullet, the magic wand... Lord, you, you will do what's best. So, I'm yours. You see, that's the posture to have when we're in the middle of our consequences. I'll close on with one story in a minute, but first, let's see if you have any questions about this three plus chapters and things we've said today. Any questions have come in? No? we'll take one. Okay, let's take a shot at this one question. Do you believe this passage speaks of generational curses? I do not believe it speaks of generational curses. I would say I do believe in generational consequences. Now, if I'm splitting hairs on words, if I'm doing semantics, forgive me. I don't know who wrote the question in. If that's what you meant, then we would agree. In fact, I would say this to you. uh, I don't necessarily believe in generational sins either. Do you know that? I don't believe that we're given a sin because our father committed a sin or our grandfather, I do believe we have generational consequences and maybe that means we have a proclivity towards certain things. Are you with me? But that's a consequence of things. It's not a, an actual, we're not, you know, like, well, he sinned this way so I've got to sin that same way too. That's not true. But we do have consequences I think from previous generations. We know in, in uh, the Old Testament that was true. But I would remind you of what's also true. That though it says that he would visit the sins of the fathers upon the third and fourth generation, later it says this, that there are blessings to a thousand generations. And church, I want, to be, I want to be one of those kind of pastors that says to you this, be leery of sin, be sober about it, be serious about it. Yes, it can affect you for generations, but you know what? So can a life of godliness and holiness. God even says he'll visit the sins for three and four, but he'll take your righteousness through Christ and extend it for thousands of generations. When I read through that and thought about that, I began to think, I think that's really what I benefit from as Roger Todd Stiles, 53-year-old living in Iowa. I don't think I've done anything on my own that really merits anything. I think I'm just benefiting from the beautiful legacy of my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my mother's father. There is a long line of godly men. I think I'm just kind of in the flow of what God's blessing is to them, (laughs) And it's a beautiful thing when you feel like, wow, this is just all a gift from God. So it makes you grateful for your past. makes you want to kind of keep that legacy going. So yes, do I believe in generational curses? No. I do believe in generational consequences. But even more deeply, I believe in generational blessings. And if you're a man in here this morning, if you're a father, if you're a husband, and you feel like, man, I've got got a, a... a mile of sin behind me from my dad and my grandfather, break the chain. Stop that flow. Get serious about sin. Don't just manage it. Kill it through the power of the Holy Spirit and realize that consequences are are extreme and difficult. And then, as you think about consequences, let them have their full work and posture you under them in a way that you trust the Lord. I mean, to live a life that's just different than the past, that's holy and righteous under the Lord's authority and by the Holy Spirit's power. It's a gospel fueled life. So, here's what I want to ask you to do with me. You've kind of seen the sequence of events in these chapters. You've kind of seen the principles from them. You've seen the spiritual point of it. You see that consequences have their effect on us. It's the undertow. But they can have one good effect they can force us to trust. My question to you is this As you stand at the shore of your life and look out at the breaking waves, as you kind of survey, okay, there's these sins that I know I've committed. I'm still kind of enduring the consequences of them. And I think most folks will have to admit there's things like that in your life. As you stay on the shore of your life and you look out over the breaking waves that have happened and you start pondering now the undertow from that, what will be your response? What will be your response to the invisible but sucking current that wants to pull people away from the shore? If you're going to try to work an angle, manipulate, maneuver, negotiate, the undertow will get you. Instead, let it actually do what it's intended to do, to appreciate the shore, to trust the Lord, in other words. Let it posture you in that position, okay? Okay?